few years ago, I decided to begin gardening. So I prepared a garden plot in my yard. I planted you know, some of the easy ones like tomatoes and cucumbers and uh, sugar snap peas. There were never enough sugar snap peas for our family. I didn't say I was a good gardener. Uh, but at some point, I also picked up a packet of watermelon seeds. I don't know if you know you could grow watermelon here in West Virginia, but I did. In the first year, I planted them very carefully, and I watered them very carefully, and I weeded them carefully, and it was a complete failure. Uh, A few watermelons grew, but they either rotted or ended up being almost completely rinds without any delicious redness inside. Very, very disappointing. Uh, So figured, well, maybe you don't grow watermelons in West Virginia after all. I don't know. So the next year, I happened to have some of the watermelon seeds left over, so I planted them in a different spot in the garden and then uh, went to Uganda and Zambia for about a month, right, in, kind of in July, so the most important watering time, the hottest, driest time of our year. And I basically left them untended, except for one of our neighbors who I'd asked to water them for me. Uh, I don't know how often she did or or God did, because like I said, I was gone for a month. Uh, When I got back and looked at my watermelon plants, they had exploded everywhere, both sides of the fence, taking over huge portions of the yard with several large watermelons. I, I mean, Three to four, probably more, big ones. And one of them was uh, larger and heavier than Maria was at the time. Uh, It was amazing. And they were delicious. There wasn't the disappointment of opening it up and it was bad. They were really, really good watermelons. It was crazy. Uh, So obviously I had figured out watermelon growing. So the next year I planted watermelons again in the same place and got nothing. What? It left me very confused, probably to this, this day. What was different about that one summer? You know, if anything, I was a better gardener than I had been before. You learn as you grow. At, I was really thankful it's not subsistence. My family would be dead if we depended on my gardening for our food. But my knowledge and methods had improved over time, so it, I should have more success, not less success. Well, apparently there's a big difference between watching something work, maybe, and knowing how it works. So you give a lot of other illustrations for that. Right? Experiencing something working and understanding how it works are very different things. Our understanding of spiritual things is like that as well. We take the gospel, for instance. I mean, since we're gathered here together on the Lord's Day as Christians, uh, we have all experienced the gospel working in our lives and the lives of those around us. Uh, we've have tasted of, we've seen fruit in our lives, tasted of it uh, as, as that fruit is extended from person to person, believer to believer. But we could ask the question, how exactly does the gospel work? Another way of asking that question is, how is it that sinners get saved? We see it happen, we've experienced it happen, but how does it happen? Uh, to put the question maybe in the best the best sense, the most thorough, perhaps, uh, how, how is it, how does God save sinners through the gospel? Many answers, uh, different paths we could take on this one particular question. But how does God save sinners through the gospel? And Paul provides an answer for this question to the Colossians. But as we enter into this, I don't want you to forget 
that this is all still in the context of Paul giving thanks to God for his work in the Christians in the Colossian church. He's writing to them, about them, but he's giving that and he's talking about them, to them, in reference to what he's thankful to God about. So in essence, he's been talking to God about what God has done in them. Paul recognized that God had transformed uh, these brothers and sisters, now brothers and sisters, had transformed them into a people who trusted Christ, loved the saints, and that transformation had grown out of the hope-proclaiming gospel to try to tie this in uh, with how we phrased things last week. We're in Colossians 1, 6 through 8, but I'm going to read 3 through 8. I'm not planning on reading the whole thing every time as we go through, but uh, hear the word of the Lord. It's Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Colossians 1, 6-8, I think, uh, answers our question that God saves sinners through the gospel, right? That, that's, that's the big point. That's the idea. His work accomplished in us through the gospel, but then we get back to how, right? The gospel had not always been present in the city of Colossae. It had not always been there. Uh, really, it, it had not always been anywhere. <laughs> uh, if we recognize how that works, we recognize the historical truth of that. It's not always been in Hurricane, West Virginia either, uh, prior to like 2019 when Risen King came, but hasn't always been here. But it was there now. The gospel had arrived. It had come to them through the evangelistic ministry of Epaphras, who Paul describes in these terms that I personally strive to be true of me as a pastor. He says, Epaphras was a faithful or a beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ on the behalf of these believers. The gospel came to them through his evangelistic ministry. What did that look like? Well, it looked like he, he spoke the gospel and they heard it. You heard it. <laughs> you heard the gospel. He had explained it and they understood it. You heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He taught it and they learned it. A pretty simple Exchange, right? That's not like, oh, wow, you just transformed gospel ministry. Never thought about it. It needed to be spoken and explained and taught. We've got this now. Basic things, but yet that is exactly what took place. But our question at the beginning was, how does God save sinners through the gospel? And here we have the first part of our answer because it begins by the fact that the gospel is shared by faithful messengers, The gospel is shared by faithful messengers. There are far too many examples of this for us to walk through together uh, throughout scripture, but I want to consider a few important passages related to this. We could think of Paul's ministry first, even as he reflects this in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing to a church 
uh, he was intricately involved with. And in this, uh, this, uh, this wonderful passage that, that we could mine so many things from, he, he gives them a reminder. I, remi- I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached or proclaimed or shared. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He wants to remind them of the gospel, so he does. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, the content of the gospel from the pen, inspired pen of the Apostle Paul. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to the 12, to 500, to Paul. Christ died for our sins, just as scripture said he would. He was buried. He was raised. And his resurrection is demonstrated through bodily appearances made to key witnesses who went forth and shared that, men like Paul. The content of the gospel the proclamation of the gospel, the saving effect of the gospel. This is what I preached to you. And you received it. it. You were saved by it. You're standing in it. Continue in this. The message, simple message proclaimed by a faithful messenger. He had talked earlier in this same book to the Corinthians chapter 3 earlier, an important passage that the Corinthians loved to try to advance themselves about others. My gifts better than your gifts. My, my favorite teacher better than your favorite teacher. Me better than, than you. Always jockeying for position. Very anti-Christ. And Paul's like, this is dumb. You're dumb. That's not what the Greek says, but one of the other teachers, a skilled teacher, talked about an Acts, a man named Apollos. Skillful with the word, skillful with, with argument, a, a fellow minister of Paul, fellow faithful messenger of the gospel. And some of them had said, oh, I'm, a, I'm an Apollosite. No, I'm, I'm a Paulite. Then you had those pious, annoying people. I'm, well, I'm of Christ. Paul's like, give me a break. <laughs> like, what then is Apollos, he writes, 1 Corinthians 3. What, what is Paul? He is Paul, by the way. It's not like, who, who's that Paul guy? It's like, what am I? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So what do we see here? Faithful messengers, gospel proclaimed or shared by faithful messengers. We see multiple laborers involved. We see multiple messengers involved in the sharing of the Gospels. You read through Acts, Paul wasn't traveling alone. Sometimes he traveled with Barnabas. Sometimes he traveled with Silas. Sometimes he's traveling with Timothy. Tychicus is with him, all these fellow servants. So it's not like the every time that the Gospel was preached or proclaimed in any of the different cities that we would read about, it's not like just Paul is preaching. Just Paul is doing all that work. He was one of many faithful messengers through whom the Word of God and the Gospel went forth, sounded out. We can't talk about the importance of the gospel being spoken and heard if we don't go to Romans chapter 10. In the midst of a lengthy argument, Paul, Paul jumps in. Everyone, Jew and Greek, that's the everyone, right? That which are, by way of categories, is everybody. 
Gentile or Greek means non-Jew and Jew means Jew. I don't know if you knew that. Everyone, Jew and Greek, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How, will they, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He, he summarizes, so faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, and it can't be heard if it's not spoken or shared. Gospel messengers are sent. They speak. It's heard. It's believed. And then the salvation that's offered is called on. The Lord is called on to save. It has to be spoken. It has to be proclaimed, shared by faithful messengers. The gospel is shared by faithful messengers. Put that another way. That, that, that is, that is to say that the good news of Christ's death and resurrection is shared by multitudes of faithful messengers in order that sinners might hear and believe and be saved. Gospel shared by faithful messengers. When it comes to evangelism or sharing the gospel, it is really easy for us as Christians to get sidetracked or slowed down by, by questions or, or by discussions, even, even arguments or methods, questions and discussions about what are, what are the best methods uh, we can get sidetracked or slowed down by, by saying, well, how is the best way, am I fully equipped to answer all arguments? Now, what are all of the apologetics defenses that I need in order to be able to evangelize? What are, what are the most effective evangelism strategies? And these certain things certainly have their place, they have their importance, but it's interesting that Paul described his ministry to the Corinthians, same man, writing about the same ministry, in the same book, he says, I knew nothing but Christ crucified when I came among you. That was it. I determined. I, I, ha- I made up my mind that this was the message. Christ crucified. And then he also says that his ministry involved destroying arguments and false lofty opinions. Same man, same ministry, same book. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to know nothing but Christ crucified. I'm also going to, I was also involved and am involved in destroying arguments, casting down false lofty opinions. So we need to understand that the gospel is both the complex, thorough argument that makes up the entire book of Romans and the gospel is the simple statement, well, I was blind And now I see, and the thing that happened was Jesus. I was a sinner, now I'm forgiven, and the thing in the middle was Jesus. That's not an either-or gospel, that's a both-and. All of these examples, others, including the preaching of Epiphras in Colossae, a multitude of other instances in Scripture, gospel presentations, Old and New Testament are what we can refer to as the general call to salvation. I say general there, I don't mean like a general in an army. General means broad. 
means kind of unlimited. It means open. The general call to salvation. I'll give you a bit of a technical definition on that. I'll say it twice. Don't feel like you have to write it down. You can ask me. I'll tell you later. The general call to salvation is this. It's the invitation from God extended to all people to come and receive salvation from their sins through Christ by faith and repentance as revealed in the Bible. General call to salvation. It's an invitation from God extended to all people to come and receive salvation from their sins through Christ by faith and repentance as revealed in the Bible. That's that from God and in the Bible are the important bookends of that. The general call to salvation. We could look through countless texts to see examples of this, but here's an important point. Every gospel presentation by any preacher is entirely, utterly insufficient to save a single soul. Every gospel presentation by any preacher, just proclaimer, any sharer is entirely, utterly insufficient to save a single soul. You're all fairly, many of you, fairly well-read, fairly well-watched, fairly well-listened listeners. Not listened to, listened. You listen. You listen a lot. It's a lot of stuff. So who do you think, I wonder, who do you think the best gospel preacher ever is? The best evangelist. Maybe we have some, maybe we have some Billy Graham fans. It's like, ah, oh, just made that real simple. Billy Graham. Or be like, no, 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 no. That's just 20th century nonsense. We've got to go back. I go back, we got to go George Whitfield, right? Preaching in streets, no amplification, heard by thousands, used by God in the first great awakening, the real one, the first great awakening in the United States. George Whitfield preaching the gospel. And you're like, no, Charles Spurgeon, prince of preachers, right? Saw the gospel in every text, I think if he pulled out a menu, he'd be like, I could preach the gospel from this menu. It's like, I don't, and he could. It probably would have been a really good sermon. He'd be like, Peter, you know, go back to scripture, man. The apostle Paul, best evangelist. He'd be like, no, you're all wrong. You know who the best evangelist ever was? I hear the whisper. Jesus, right? And if you were like, oh, it's this different person from church history, well, then you're wrong. Jesus wins. Come on, Sunday school, guys. The answer is Jesus. Always shout it out. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but the teacher can't, like, criticize you because it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus was the best gospel preacher. It was a message about himself in his perfect wisdom. John 6 is an example of Jesus preaching the gospel. Jesus in John 6, he feeds 5,000 men and their families with one boy's lunch, The crowd obviously marvels at this miracle. They want to force Jesus to be their earthly king. That's not what his mission was. He and his disciples cross the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds, but they follow and they chase him down by boat and on foot. And he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to them again. They want earthly bread. They want an earthly king. They want deliverance from an earthly oppressor in Rome. And Jesus 
tries to get the point across to them. Says like, your, your hunger isn't physical, it's spiritual, right? The solution isn't, isn't lunch, it's, it's bread from heaven, spiritual bread. And your, your oppressor isn't Rome, it's your own sin, They want earthly bread. Jesus exhorts them, no, no, no. You need to receive me, he says, as the true spiritual bread that came down from heaven. That's where I came from, he says. You need to believe in me for eternal life. Yet they grumble about it. They don't like that. Probably don't like that that what what they think their need was, that they're wrong. They don't like that. They don't like this idea that this man standing in front of them claims to have come down from God, greater than Moses, and yet not willing to, to bow to them. They grumble about him. They doubt his claims to have come down from heaven. He didn't come from heaven. He came from Nazareth. That's bad enough, but what is this heaven stuff? So he says to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He takes the metaphor further. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And not only just the outskirt people don't like this, but even some who are self-proclaimed, self-professing disciples, followers, learners, who had dedicated themselves to him in some way, even they reject this. Many of them went away. Jesus explains why they were rejecting this. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh, your flesh, my flesh, it is no help at all. That was my insertion. Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. Your flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So what's the point of this? Even by a perfect gospel preacher, the general call to salvation is insufficient to save sinners. Even by a perfect gospel preacher, the Lord Jesus, the invitation extended to anyone who would hear him on its own, that invitation, that call to salvation was useless to save them. It could not do it. And Jesus taught that both by his words and by his example. See, something more than the broad call by a human preacher, something more is needed. And something more takes place whenever someone trusts in Christ. More is needed than the words spoken or written. More is needed and more takes place every time a person trusts in Christ. How does God save sinners through the gospel? First, the gospel is shared by faithful messengers. Absolutely necessary. How God saves sinners. The gospel is proclaimed or shared by faithful messengers, but then the gospel bears fruit by the Holy Spirit. Gospel shared by faithful messengers, the gospel bears fruit by the Holy Spirit. 
The gospel had been shared among the Colossians. It had arrived. It had come to them. And it was continuing to spread around the Roman Empire, the whole world, as it were. And it was not just spreading. It was not just arriving in these places. What does Paul say in verse 6? It has come to you, sure, as indeed in the whole world it is, not just coming, not just arriving, but bearing fruit and increasing. Those are some good gardening type terms there. It's what I wanted from my watermelons. I wanted it to bear fruit. I wanted that fruit to increase because there's a difference between sowing a seed and that seed taking root and growing and flowering and producing fruit, right? There's a difference between those two things. The word of the truth, the gospel was bearing the fruit of transformed lives everywhere it arrived, which is remarkable. And it was remarkable and it was unexpected because it was a very unlikely message about a crucified Jewish rabbi who his followers said came back from the dead. That seems significant to us, right? Israel, Jerusalem, Jesus, the Messiah sounds really, really big. But you, you leave that little corner of the Roman Empire and you go anywhere else and they're like, I think I might have heard of Israel, maybe. Where is that again? Can you remind me? I mean, no, nobody from nowhere. And he was crucified, right? Conquered by the Romans. That's what that symbol meant. Crucifixion was like the Romans saying, checkmate, we win, you lose. That's why they crucified thousands upon thousands upon thousands of their enemies. Even the Jewish law said it was a curse to die on a tree, and indeed it was. An unlikely message about a crucified Jewish rabbi who came back from the dead. It was also, it's an unpleasant message. Caught that? An unpleasant message. Hey, by the way, let me share something with you. You are all horrible sinners against God. And his wrath is coming on you forever and you deserve it. And there's nothing that you can do about it on your own. You're entirely helpless. But you can bend your knee and repent, admit how horrible you are and you can be freed from this disaster. Right, boy, that just fills you with, with goosebumps inside. Oh, that's so, thank you. Thank you for telling me how terrible, uh, danger, in danger and useless I am to do this, right? No, no, no person ever wants to hear that. You're in trouble, it's your fault, nothing you can do about it. What do you got to say? <laughs> that's an unpleasant message, and it's also, Paul admits it's a foolish message. It was shared unconvincingly or without worldly wisdom, without rhetorical flourishes, without good arguments, without, uh, without trained communicators, most part untrained communicators. You know, guys with, with y'all in there or dangling prepositions or, or any of those other grammatical sins. Even you know, Peter, right? Fisherman. Sure, Paul was trained, but then he talks about the fact, he's like, yeah, I'm it wasn't pride of it, you know, it's, it's true. He's like, yeah, I'm brilliant, but every time I stand in front of you, I keep stuttering. So Paul's like, I am not the polished speaker. That's a polis, but not Paul. Came before you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, right? Let me go to Isaiah and tell you why Jesus is the Messiah. Like, is that guy okay? Like, is he gonna make it? Foolish message shared unconvincingly by untrained communicators, and it was an unwelcome message. It was brutally opposed by both the Jewish religion on one side and the Roman religion on the other side. 
And yet, it kept going place to place. It kept spreading, and it kept bearing fruit, and it kept increasing, right? Everything stacked against it, right? Every time the gospel went head to head against an authority, the, the followers lost and died, and yet somehow it just continues to spread. Like, you get that that doesn't make sense, right? The spread of Islam in northern Africa makes sense because if you have the bigger sword and you say, convert or die, and the people don't, they're like, okay, I guess we're Muslim now, right? But the gospel didn't spread like that first, second, third centuries. Illegal, persecuted, lions, flames. Christianity never should have made it outside of Israel. Never. Yet it spread like wildfire across all cultural barriers, down into Africa, across into Europe. The Bible doesn't follow it, but it made its way east as well. I'll be all the way into India early from the mystery of the apostles. We only get to follow, what, like two of them? Like, what, where did the other ones go? And church history tells us a little bit about that. But it didn't just spread like wildfire there. It's continued to do so for nearly 2,000 years, crossing language and cultural barriers that nothing else, nothing else can bridge. How do we explain that? I'd say that the only possible answer is the work of the Holy Spirit accompanying the sharing of the gospel. It's the only explanation that's possible. How can the gospel continue to flourish in North Korea or in China, or in Iraq. How? Right? Everything is stacked against them. You publicly profess, and it's, it's death or exile in those type of things. I've been reading a, a missionary biography, uh, mid-19th century, to the New Hebrides Islands down near Fiji, John Patton. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. In the 1830s, the first missionaries arrived on the island uh, from uh, England or Scotland, one of those two, excited to preach the gospel to people that they didn't know there was no language bridge that had been made yet. They don't know anything about their culture. They don't have any way to communicate that with them. No translator, no guide, no written language, nothing. Those men were beaten to death within the first 15 minutes of setting foot on the island. Took a few years, they sent, they sent more back in. Those guys lasted about seven months, had to move on to a different island. So they sent more. And the missionaries that arrived, this great quote that happens in the book, when they arrived, there were no Christians on this island of a few thousand people. And it says when they left, there were no heathen left. That doesn't make any sense. Unless the Holy Spirit is involved. And the Holy Spirit is involved in the preaching of the gospel. The gospel bears fruit not by the skill of preachers, but by the Holy Spirit. If the message shared by faithful messengers is the general call to salvation, the broad one, then this is the specific call, also referred to as the effectual call or efficacious call. That those, those words have to do with the power that accompanies that. Effectual, efficacious, effective, right? It accomplishes its purposes, this isn't the weakness side of the gospel. This is the power side of the gospel. 
But the power doesn't come in the wisdom or words of men. It comes in the working of the Holy Spirit. This is also what we would refer to in the acronym TULIP of the Doctrines of Grace. This is irresistible grace. It takes some, uh, takes some defining. So I've got a definition for this as well. The effectual call to salvation is the summons from God. First was an invitation. This is a summons from God extended not to all people, but to the elect that enables them to respond to the general call by the power of the Holy Spirit. The effectual call to salvation is the summons from God extended to the elect that enables them to respond to the general call by the power of the Holy Spirit. We already quoted a little bit of this, but John 6, 44 and 65, Jesus is talking about this. No one can come to me, right? He says, basically, hey, come to me. And they don't. He's like, that's because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Come to me, invitation, draws him draws her. That's a powerful summoning. And I will raise him up on the last day. He says later, verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Something more than a gospel proclamation is needed for someone to be saved, and every time someone is saved, every time someone comes to Christ, something more has happened. And what has happened is that the Father who sent Christ and who sends messengers in the name of Christ works to draw them to himself. Not all are called like this. Not all who hear are drawn or summoned. Like, how, how could you possibly say that? Because Jesus said it. Not because Calvin said it, or because Piper says it, or because I say it. God's word says it. No one, not all who hear, are drawn. Not all who hear come because not all are drawn. Uh, we, we quoted in I read from 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul's talking about uh, uh, differences in ministry. Uh, I planted, he said, Apollos watered, uh, but God gave the growth. It wasn't me, it wasn't him. He makes it clear. So neither he who plants himself, nor he who waters, Apollos, neither of us are anything. Uh, but only God who gives the growth. Only God who gives the increase. Only God who causes the fruit to be born, to come into existence. It's like, well, how do you have this on calling? Why are you using the same word? Well, because the Bible actually uses the same word in both of these senses. That's why you've got to be careful about, about word studies. Right? One word doesn't always mean the same thing in every context. You have, to, you have to consider exactly what it's saying. It's like, is this call the invitation, right, that broadcasts out, or is this call the summoning? And we can go to Romans 8, see the word calling, and see God's plan of salvation in this. Those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the connection on that. That's not, that's not a funnel that starts big and then narrows down, right? That's, that's straight. 100% of those who are predestined are called, are justified, are glorified. No one falls off from the plan of God. 
So we have calling lined up with all of those type of things because all those whom God planned to save in time, he summons through the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then they are justified through faith in Christ and they will be glorified. This calling is effectual or irresistible because it is also transformative. The calling, the work of the Holy Spirit is one of transformation. This call, not the invitation, the summons is life-giving. It is nature-changing. When I say nature-changing, I mean it is heart-changing. Who you are spiritually changes by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not irresistible grace. People go, oh, what does that mean? Right? You get this weird picture of somebody being dragged, kicking and screaming away from hell and into heaven. Like, no, no, don't save me. That's not what this means. It is not the gospel forced on the unwanting or the unwilling or the hostile. It is not stubborn sinners being dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. No one trusts in Christ who doesn't want to trust in Christ. But naturally, no one wants to trust in Christ. No one. So if no one wants to, and no one comes who doesn't want to, right? There's a big barrier in between that, right? No one wants to, no one comes who doesn't want to would mean no one would come. But that's not true. We've come. So it's like, oh, so we did want to. Nope, <laughs> it's not biblical. It's what happens. How is it that me, you, anyone, Paul, oh, we'll get to Paul in a minute. How is it that, that they now want when before they didn't want to? How is it that they are now willing when before they were unwilling? How is it that they are now uh, friendly, open to the idea that they were hostile or closed to? It's because they've been given a new heart. They've been given a new nature. I don't think it was original to Gerald, but he said it this week, new wantsies. That's putting it clearly. Why do you want what you didn't want before? Wanting, that's a deep desires, heart, will, nature. Those are deep things. And it's not just, oh, yeah, let me just fix that. Let me just adjust it. You have to be changed. You can't change yourself. In fact, the ones who want what they didn't want before, they're actually entirely new people. They are a new work of creation by God. The old, the old once, that passed away. Guess what? The new has come. New hearts, new natures, new once, new response to the gospel, which is, yes! Give it, give it to me! I want Christ! I don't care what I said before. I don't care how much I hated it. Love sin. Get that away from me. I want Jesus. This effectual call has power from the Holy Spirit behind it. That is the work of regeneration, being made new. And having been made new, having gotten a new heart, new wantsies, 
a new nature, then we respond out of that nature, which is then we receive through faith and repentance. A dead man, a dead woman cannot receive. Faith is an act of spiritual life and you have to be alive to act alive. And the preaching of the gospel broadly going out has no power attached to it. But the Holy Spirit works with the preaching of the gospel and bears fruit. You have to hear both of those together, right? It's like, Peter, gospel is the power of God and salvation. Yes, when the Holy Spirit works through it. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just go around doing nothing. The Holy Spirit accompanies faithful messengers proclaiming the good news. It's the pattern scripture again and again and again. Responding to the gospel message that we've heard. We can see this type of transformation. I mean, repentance is you're one way and you go the other way and you, you seek to go hard in that new direction. We can see that demonstrated in Acts chapter nine, Paul writing in Colossians, writing to the Ephesians, writing to the Corinthians, all of these different things, writing to the Romans. In Acts nine, where it's his own testimony he's giving, he's heading to Damascus because, and he hates Jesus and he wants to imprison his followers, every single one of them. Already dragged some into prison, stood by giving acceptance, official acceptance, while Stephen is crushed to death with stones for saying that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul is heading to Damascus, hating Jesus, planning to imprison his followers, but when he arrives, he gets to Damascus, and instead he joins those followers and proclaims Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogue. Proclaiming Trinitarianism to a committed monotheistic religion. There is no God but one key foundational. He's like, yes, that's true. And Jesus is the son of God. He's the fulfillment of all of it. He's the creator. He's Lord. He is God. He's alive. You need to worship him. What happened on Damascus, was he just sitting there thinking, you know, it's like, well, maybe I should change my life. Maybe I should give this blasphemer a second, a second thought. I think that would be a good idea. No, God acted on him. Christ revealed himself to him, and it was a supernatural transformation, only explainable by the power of the Holy Spirit, causing the scales of sin to fall off his spiritual eyes, just like a few days later, Physical, as it were, scales fell off his physical eyes. You ever wonder why that was happening? It's like, this is a metaphor. This is what had happened in his soul. The same work took place in the life of Lydia, a wealthy merchantess in the city of Philippi. Acts 16, 14, Luke describes this. It says, one who heard us, which is Paul's ministry team, heard the preaching of the gospel. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart, right? This isn't true. This is true. Not because Paul was convincing, but because God acted. Without the Holy Spirit's accompanying work, without the Holy Spirit coming alongside of any gospel presentation, the gospel message is just words on a page. 
or the foolish, empty, offensive babbling of a preacher. The putrid, repulsive aroma of death to those who are perishing. But with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, the gospel is wisdom from God. The gospel is a message of his mercy and grace. It is the delightful aroma of life to those being saved and the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever flown a kite? Let's go fly a kite. Kites are interesting, amazing things. I mean, you can make a kite with supplies around your house. We made made kites. Probably wasn't me involved. I'm not the interesting one. I'm weird. She's interesting. You can make a kite with supplies around your house. You can spend a dollar at Dollar Tree and get a kite. You could spend $50, maybe $55 on Amazon for a super fancy kite. Somewhere, I'm sure, you could spend $1,000 on a kite. Don't know where, but capitalism. (laughs) But do you know what will happen with your homemade kite, with your $1,000 kite? Do you know what will happen when you take it outside on a day with no wind? Nothing. It won't fly. You can have a great kite. You can have the best kite. You can have, you can have a little uh, coffee filter on a string. No wind, no fun, no kite. It's not going to work. And you can't make the wind blow as much as you want it to. You can only wait for it. You can only watch for it. You remember that Jesus used this very picture to teach Nicodemus about how the working of the Holy Spirit is accomplished in the new birth? He says in John chapter three, the wind blows where it wishes. He says you have to be born not just, of, not just of flesh. You have to be born of the spirit. Then he uses this great picture. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Epaphras brought a kite to Colossae and I bet it was a great one. But it only flew because the Holy Spirit sent the wind. So Paul rejoices. He gives thanks to God. Like I mentioned last week, he gives thanks to God because God deserves the thanks. It's disingenuous to say thank you to someone who wasn't involved. It is, what's the word? Ungrateful. Uh, when we're talking about God, blasphemous, um, to fail to give thanks for what he has accomplished. So Paul rejoices and he gives thanks to God. God had sent Jesus. God had saved Epaphras. God had sent Epaphras to Colossae with the gospel and God had caused the gospel to bear fruit and increase in that city just as it was doing around the world. How does God save sinners through the gospel? The gospel is shared by faithful messengers and then the gospel bears fruit by the Holy Spirit. So what do, we, what do we do with these truths then? What do we do with this? Well, first, very simple, we, like Paul, you, we should praise God for all of the Holy Spirit's work in you including your salvation. 
everything since. Recognize, as we all do by the Spirit that's in us, that you don't deserve praise or thanks to yourself. And even when we say thanks to human messengers, that's not inappropriate to say thanks to them. We're, we're actually thanking God for them. Not oh, your argument, that was it. Your illustrations, otherwise I wouldn't be a Christian. Right? That's, that's foolish. This is false. God used you being a faithful messenger. Bring the gospel to me and he worked in it. That's good. That's true. We praise God for the Holy Spirit's work in us. So come to grips with this. You did not believe because you were clever. You did not believe because you were convinced by a skillful preacher. You were transformed by God the Holy Spirit. So God deserves all praise and soli deo gloria, all glory for his work in you. And then think about what God by his spirit has done in your life through the gospel. Right? What were you like? And how are you different? I'm not perfect. Didn't say you were perfect. You think you're perfect? You're, you're wrong. What were you like and what are you like now? How are you different? Where were you headed and where are you headed now? What is your hope now? The, the impossible changes, the impossible changes that yet, although impossible, have taken place in your life are possible among other people as well. We're not the first gospel-changed sinners. We're not the last Gospel-changed sinners were not the only gospel-changed sinners. God is at work here and around the world, and that work is continuing then from us. God is still saving sinners through the gospel shared by faithful messengers, which is then who we are to be. We praise God for that, and we also, we, we, we take heart. We are comforted or, or be encouraged. What's encouraging about this? Be encouraged that you are not responsible to save the lost. You are helpless to save the lost, as helpless as you were to save yourself. But that's not discouraging because it's not just you. You're not alone in gospel presentations. Just as you didn't save yourself and the people who shared the gospel with you didn't save you, neither are you called to save those that you share the gospel with. Not saved by Peter, saved by Robbie, saved by Laura Beth, saved by mom, saved by dad, saved by Sunday school teachers, saved by radio preachers, saved by uh, street chalk artists, saved by Jesus. We are called to be faithful messengers to proclaim God's gospel. Gospel from God, gospel about God. And it's not just the work of pastors or successful evangelists or missionaries. It's all of us. We are all to be faithful messengers. And we can take comfort and be encouraged knowing what our role is and what our role isn't. We share the gospel, but the Holy Spirit is the only one who can cause it to bear fruit and increase. 
By God's grace, he has, and by God's grace, he will continue to do so. I mentioned Charles Spurgeon earlier as an example of a renowned gospel preacher. He pastored a large church in London in the 19th century, and like many older church buildings, be cool if it was ours, but it's not, it won't be, pulpit was raised up above the congregation so everybody could see him and everybody could hear him. That wasn't uh, egomania, just there wasn't any other amplification. He was loud, but he needed to be in a good spot to be heard and to be seen by the thousands who came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It was raised up, which means he had to climb upstairs in order to get to the pulpit to preach. I've got like two. He had like seven or eight, so much cooler. But it's been said that as Spurgeon would climb the stairs up to the pulpit where he preached the gospel, where hundreds, thousands, only, only eternity will tell how many people the Holy Spirit worked in through his faithful proclamation. As he climbed those stairs, it's said that each step he would say to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, walking up to the pulpit to proclaim the gospel. Oh, that we too would believe God's word, that his spirit comes alongside faithful messengers of his gospel to save sinners, bear fruit, and increase here and around the world. I may try my hand at gardening again this year. Of the seeds I sow, some will grow and some will not. But all I can do is sow and water and watch what God will do. Father, each week may we give you praise and thanks. The work is your work. Forgive us for any time that we think, try to claim credit or grasp credit or glory for ourselves. Forgive us for when we, we fail to, to share because in our folly we think it is about us. Thank you for the reassurance that we, we may bring the gospel, but you bring the power of the gospel through your spirit. Give us faith to accept that as true and to live it out. It is true. The gospel is the power of God's salvation. It has borne fruit, has increased, and it will. Please let us be part of it. Amen.